0: for going ahead and getting this taken care of for us today. And uh, we'll certainly be praying for Brother Paul. Well, let's open to John chapter 5. In a moment, we'll get back to John chapter 11. But let's go to John 5 this morning. Let's remind ourselves of a statement that Jesus made at the Pool of Bethesda. This is a very important statement that's going to prepare us for the resurrection of Lazarus. And today, we're going to be looking at the aftermath of the resurrection of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus transitions us to the second half of John's Gospel, where Jesus will enter his final week in Jerusalem. And that week will end with Jesus' own dramatic resurrection from the grave. We have noted all the way along in John's Gospel that Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection were not some sort of last-minute change of fortunes for an otherwise popular Galilean preacher. Animosity, in fact, has been building toward Jesus and against Jesus all the way through John's Gospel. As early as John chapter 5, when Jesus healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath, the Jews set about to kill him. John chapter 5. So why the hostility? Well, Jesus himself did not leave people many options. He claimed to be equal with the Father. And he claimed as early as John 5 to raise people by his own will. Look at verse 25 of John chapter 5. Look at this truly astonishing statement. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming. Notice the next four words. And is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear, here's the word again, voice, his voice, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So Jesus views himself like the Father as the source of life. And further, he insists that an hour is coming when he will resurrect the dead by his voice. He will speak and dead bodies will emerge out of the tombs. It was a voice that originally called the world into existence out of nothing. And Jesus claims his own voice will now raise the dead from the dust of the earth because he has the same authority as the Father. Now, earlier in John 5, Jesus referred to God as, quote, my Father. That, of course, implied his equality with God. Further, he claimed that both he and the Father were working together to heal the man at the Pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And those earlier claims provoked attempts on his life. So, if those earlier claims provoked attempts on his life, what are you going to do with verses 25 through 29 that we just read? Jesus claims a kind of power that no Old Testament prophet even dreamed of. He is the source of resurrection and life. When people encountered Jesus' teaching, it was not enough to recognize him as a great prophet. In fact, it was not enough to recognize him as the greatest of the prophets. The one thing that Jesus does not do is mince words about his true identity and equality with the Father. C.S. Lewis writes in Mere Christianity, Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says that he has always existed. He says he is coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let us get this clear. Among pantheists like the Indians, anyone might say that he was part of God or one with God. There would be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. Not the pantheist kind of God, where we all have a little piece of God within us. God, in their language, in the Jewish language, meant the being outside of the world who had made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, You will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. That is precisely correct. Jesus said the most shocking things possible about himself. So you've got to decide is he telling the truth or is he completely insane? Well, how would you know that Jesus is more than Moses or Isaiah or Elijah or one of the great prophets? Well, in this context, Jesus gives the Jews an opportunity to really discover the validity of his claims. And it's right there in verse 25. Jesus says not only is the hour of resurrection coming in the future, it is now here. It's already here. Can Jesus actually raise a dead body by his voice from the grave? Well, John 5 is the broader literary context in which we have to return now to John chapter 11. Let's go to John chapter 11 with all that background in place. As we have discovered in working through John 11... The passage really isn't about Lazarus in the end, although he certainly was the recipient of a powerful miracle. The resurrection of Lazarus was actually a test of Jesus' own statement, the hour of resurrection by his voice has come. Now, of course, Jesus did not raise Lazarus to permanent new creature, eternal life, Jesus himself will be the first fruits of the permanent resurrection. Nevertheless, the raising of Lazarus is proof that Jesus has authority in his voice to actually call the dead up from the grave. That's the point. So how would the Jews respond to this voice that raises the dead? If the healing at Bethesda created a dilemma for the Jews, the raising of Lazarus actually creates a crisis. There is only one alternative to embracing Jesus. Jesus must be destroyed. And not only Jesus, but anyone who testifies to Jesus' resurrection power, he too must be destroyed. Lazarus must die. And don't forget how quickly the book of Acts follows on the heels of the Gospels. When the disciples go out and begin preaching the resurrection at Pentecost, they too come under a sentence of death. The resurrection of Lazarus then is going to polarize the Jews into two warring parties. There's no middle ground. So let's take up a story now, beginning with verse 45. John 11, verse 45. Lazarus is resurrected. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know, so that they might arrest him. So chapter 11 ends with both an open acknowledgement in verse 53, that Jesus is now under a death sentence. And in verse 57, orders are given to hunt him down and arrest him. And Jesus, at this point, is not the only person in danger. Skip ahead to John chapter 12 and verse 9. When a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So, the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So, Lazarus, too, is under a death sentence. Now, how ironic is that? The chief priests seek to kill the man that Jesus resurrected because they deny Jesus' power to resurrect. They can't handle the evidence that's just standing there staring them in the face. We saw a similar irony back in John chapter nine when the rulers rejected the man who was born blind. They rejected him as having been born in sin. If you recall, rabbinic teaching alleged that when a person was born blind, it was because of some sin that he had committed in the womb or his parents had committed. But here's the irony: in claiming that he was actually born blind, they are that he was born in sin. Rather, they are implying that he was actually born blind. But obviously he was no longer blind because he's standing there looking at them. They refuse to admit that a miracle just happened. They're too blind to see their folly. The evidence is irrelevant. Jesus, we can't handle him. This ridiculous bias is going to show up again in Acts chapter 4. Peter and John invoke the name of Jesus of Nazareth, who was resurrected when they tell the lame man to stand up and walk. But taking private counsel, the rulers asked, What shall we do with these men, these followers of Jesus, who are preaching the resurrection? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, once again, the evidence of the miracle was irrelevant. The rulers could not deny it, but it doesn't matter. You cannot preach or teach the name of Jesus. You cannot teach the resurrection in the name of Jesus. So again, I ask, as I've done again and again and again in John's Gospel, what are you going to do with this man named Jesus? What do you do with him? He either is who he claimed to be, or he is a liar or a lunatic. There's, just, there's no middle ground. You have to embrace him or you have to crucify him. There's no third option. And the fact is, all through church history, the scene that plays out in John eleven forty five 45, and 46 has repeated itself over and over and over again. Look at the text. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them, went to the Pharisees, and told them what Jesus had done. Friends, Jesus... Divides people. Jesus divides people. For all our modern emphasis on unity and reconciliation and harmony, Jesus divides people. Now, if you want to embrace Jesus as God, by all means, let's have a conversation about unity and reconciliation and harmony. But otherwise, Jesus' true identity divided people. You either embrace him or you kill him. Now, thankfully, verse 45 tells us that many Jews did indeed embrace him. Interpreters sometimes go too far in emphasizing the Jews' rejection of their Messiah. Well, it's true that the nation as a whole and the leadership in particular failed to embrace Jesus. That does not mean that all the Jews rejected Jesus. That is simply not true. Many saw Lazarus. They saw him resurrect, and they believed on Jesus. If you think about those Pentecostal crowds, these were Jews who spoke diverse languages from all across the Roman world. And after just two sermons, some 8,000 of them embraced Jesus. So not all Jews rejected Jesus. Many of them embraced Jesus. Jesus. However, in verse 46, there were those who rejected him, and they went off and reported him to the Pharisees. And their report prompted the Sanhedrin to convene. In verses 47 through 53, we have a description then of the gathering of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now, John does not actually tell us this was the Sanhedrin. This is the Jewish uh, highest governing body. But no doubt this was the Sanhedrin. We know that because the Sanhedrin consisted of the Pharisees, the chief priest, most of whom were Sadducees, and the high priest Caiaphas. They had a council. And all three are named right here in this passage. So this is undoubtedly the Sanhedrin that gathers to meet and discuss what to do with Jesus. Now keep in mind that this Sanhedrin is the same council that will convene in a very short time During Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, same group, and they're going to convene, and they're going to see to it that Jesus is crucified. So let's take just a moment to really understand our passage and project forward for just a minute, and let's talk about what actually happened in the final week. What actually happened after Jesus rode into town on his donkey? Well, most of you will have heard of the six trials of Jesus of Nazareth. To be precise, Jesus was actually passed through two trials, not six, but two trials, a Jewish trial followed by a Roman trial. But Each of those trials consisted of three hearings, three and three, three Jewish hearings, three Roman hearings, and that's where we get a total of six trials or six total hearings, Now, the first Jewish hearing is recorded only in John's Gospel. It was a preliminary hearing before Annas, who was the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And this hearing goes nowhere. Annas finds nothing about Jesus that would cause him to render a verdict. Jesus then appeared twice before the Jewish Sanhedrin, once in the night and again the following morning. So, the second hearing, which is the first of the two Sanhedrin hearings, brought a charge of blasphemy against Jesus for assuming to be the Son of God. You are blaspheming. The third hearing, also before the Sanhedrin the following morning, brought no new charges. It simply reaffirmed the previous night's verdict. So the Sanhedrin says, Jesus is a blasphemer. He deserves death. Jesus is then delivered over to the Romans. And Jesus appeared before Pilate, then Herod, and then Pilate again. And the Romans famously found no fault in him. None whatsoever. And Pilate attempts to wash his hands of the whole affair. But the Jews pressured the Romans to have him crucified anyway. So ultimately, it was the verdict of the Sanhedrin, not the Romans, but the Sanhedrin, that led to Jesus' crucifixion. It was the verdict of this council that's meeting here, even before the final week, in response to Lazarus' resurrection. Now, why am I leaping ahead and explaining all of that? Well, John's gospel records nothing of those two later phases of the Sanhedrin trial. We know about that trial from the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We don't know about that trial from John. Surely, that's not because John is somehow ignorant of that Sanhedrin trial. Rather, John has opted to focus our attention on a different gathering of the Sanhedrin, a gathering that actually preceded the Sanhedrin council of the final week. So he's focused on the Sanhedrin, but an earlier meeting of the Sanhedrin. That's what we have here in John 11. The question you might be asking then is, well, why does he do this? And the answer is, well, no one knows for certain. All right, John has just opted to do this, but let me take a stab at it. I can't say for certain. But I'm guessing that what John is interested in doing here is continuing an emphasis that has been rumbling all the way through his gospel. Once again, John has emphasized that certain sectors of Judaism, particularly the Jerusalem leadership, have been hostile toward Jesus all the way along. There's always been that underlying hostility. And John wants us to know that the hostility that Jesus experienced after his donkey ride was already there before he ever showed up for that, for that final Passover. In fact, opposition toward Jesus is deeply, deeply entrenched. Every time Jesus came to Jerusalem, he was opposed. Now, you wouldn't know that from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but you do know that from John's Gospel, that opposition has been there all the way along. So here we are before the final week and the Sanhedrin is already meeting and trying to figure out how can we get rid of this guy. So the record of the council found in verses 47 through 53 is for us then an introduction to the second half of John's gospel where John will now be preoccupied with Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. This is preparation for entering that final week. John 11, as I've mentioned previously, is a hinge chapter in the book. It transitions us from Jesus' public ministry of preaching and performing miracles to his final days. And if you look at verse 55, you will discover a little chronological marker that introduces the final week. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and that is a reference to Jesus' final Passover. Jesus will come to Jerusalem for Passover, but he will come under a sentence of death. That was verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So, friends, don't read the Passover week with a wrong impression, as many Bible readers do. It's often been said that the fickle Jews welcomed Jesus at the beginning of the week in the triumphal entry. They welcomed him with open arms only to turn on him by the end of the week. That's actually not what happened. The Sanhedrin had already decided, even before Jesus rode up the town, they'd already decided they're going to put this man to death. He will not survive the Passover week. So with that broader context in mind, let's actually work back now through verses 47 through 53. And let's, let's look at these verses as a kind of preparation for the final week of Jesus' life. Notice the question, first of all, the Jews ask in verse 47. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. The question is desperate. It's not a question of whether Jesus performed signs, but a question of what to do with his evident power. This question is again a willful denial of the plain evidence of Jesus' true identity. But what is it that's so troubling about Jesus' miracles? Well, the answer comes in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. To be blunt, the leaders are more concerned with politics than theology. As the highest governing power in the country, the Sanhedrin is more concerned to keep their status than to truly investigate the true meaning of Jesus' signs. Now, it could be that some among them were concerned that Jesus was some sort of Jewish revolutionary. He was intent on wresting power away from the Romans, because we have seen people like this before. The Jews knew all too well that there had been many false messiahs who had come, and their efforts were short-lived, and before you knew it, here come the Romans again, stamping across their country. The problem is, Jesus gives no indication whatsoever that he is some sort of revolutionary. He never raises a rabble. He never takes up arms. He never preaches treason. And his signs were healing signs. They pointed to himself as the creator, overcoming the baneful effects of the curse. This is what he's going around doing. He's helping people. There's no sign that he's about to overthrow the Romans. Now, presiding over this council is a man named Caiaphas, and we meet him in verse 49. And John notes of Caiaphas, he was high priest that year, and that almost sounds like he was appointed to a yearly term, but that's actually not true. Caiaphas had been high priest since the year A.D. 18, and he would remain in power until A.D. 36, when both he and Pontius Pilate were deposed. Many high priests, in fact, were appointed for life. So what does John mean by that year? Well, he's not emphasizing an appointment, but rather the phrase seems to mean something like that fateful year or that very important year, that significant year. This is an allusion to the all-important year of Jesus' death. Caiaphas was priest that fateful year when Jesus died. Now, in verse 49, Caiaphas' opening salvo lacks diplomacy. You know nothing at all, he says. This is an aggressive jab at members of the council who apparently had not yet taken up a firm position against Jesus. They're a bit on the fence about Jesus still. And it's not immediately apparent what he's reacting to when he says, you know nothing at all. Who's he talking to? What's he reacting to? A little bit difficult to say. In fact, we can't say But John's record of the statement actually sets us up for an ironic but delightful little passage that follows. In fact, what follows, I think, is one of the more intriguing passages in the whole of John's Gospel. In fact, I think it's one of the more intriguing passages in the New Testament. And curiously, it turns out that it's Caiaphas who knows nothing at all. But ironically, through Caiaphas... God is going to prophesy an extraordinary truth. Verses 50 through 52 are actually a wonderful example of what has been called Johannine irony. That is to say that John, the Gospel writer, loves irony. I've tried to bring this out on many occasions. He loves irony. What Caiaphas says in the following verses is both true true but far more true than he realizes. So let's explore this interesting little statement. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now understand, Caiaphas is no friend of Jesus. His statement is a utilitarian statement of political expediency. He doesn't believe that Jesus is about to go out and make an atonement for the nation. That's not what he's thinking. Caiaphas is concerned with the consequences of a Roman invasion to take out a false Christ. If indeed one man's action is is going to bring the whole Roman army thundering back into Israel with an enormous loss of life... Well, wouldn't it be better for one man to die and not for all of us to perish? That's the way he's thinking. We don't want thousands to die. Put this revolutionary to death first. Isn't the sacrifice of one man better than the sacrifice of the whole nation? And as high priest, Caiaphas, should understand the sacrifice better than anyone. In fact, the language that he uses here in Greek is the language of sacrifice. Further, Caiaphas' notion of Jesus as a scapegoat for the nation is actually quite consistent with Sinaitic themes. But does Caiaphas really understand everything that he's saying? Does Caiaphas realize how much more theological meaning there actually is in his statement? God does indeed intend for one man the very man whom they seek to condemn, to die for the people. But not quite in the way that Caiaphas thinks. Caiaphas is prophesying much more truth than he himself understands. And the following verses probe the irony further. Look at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Now, John does not mean that Caiaphas has no control over what he's saying, like he's a puppet or something like that. Caiaphas actually meant what he said. But curiously, God was also speaking through Caiaphas. He was the high priest after all. God is speaking through the high priest more truth than even the high priest himself realizes. We really should not be surprised by this. God can speak through the lips of even an unregenerate person. God can speak through the lips of a donkey if he wants. We've seen him do that. God spoke truth through some very questionable characters in the Old Testament. Aside from the Son of God, if you think about it, every prophet, priest, or king whom God ever spoke through was a sinner. So we ought not be surprised that God actually can speak truth through Caiaphas, even when Caiaphas himself doesn't understand what he's saying. The fact is, Peter tells us that there were many Old Testament prophets who actually did not grasp the full meaning of what they said. Even men of God who knew the Lord didn't understand fully what they were saying. So God is speaking through Caiaphas... Even if they're not saying precisely the same thing, there is in fact a double meaning to Caiaphas' prophecy. That's the beautiful irony of it. So what specifically did Caiaphas prophesy, and then what specifically did God prophesy? All right, What did Caiaphas prophesy that fateful year? Well, two things in particular. At the end of verse 51, that Jesus should die for the nation. That's what he prophesied, that Jesus should die for the nation. And verse 52, and not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So, thinking in terms of political expediency, Caiaphas believes it was better for one man to die rather than for the whole nation to be crushed by Rome. Further, the destruction of Israel by the Romans would certainly affect Jews, Gathered or scattered abroad, it would come for Passover, but scattered abroad all across the empire. That's what he's referencing in verse 52. There's Jews all over the place. And if there is an invasion of Israel, well, obviously that's going to affect Jews everywhere. Even to this day, if something happens that affects Jews in Israel, it affects Jews all over the world. So in a very utilitarian sense, Caiaphas believes that it would be better just to silence Jesus. That's good for the nation. It's good for the people spread all over the empire. Let's just silence Jesus. He's just the latest in a long line of claimants to be the false, the true Messiah. Let's silence him already. And so he prophesies accurately that Jesus will die that very year. It's all true. But then again, what was God prophesying? Through the very high priest whom his law had appointed. What did God communicate through Caiaphas that fateful year? Answer two things. Into verse 51 that Jesus would die for the nation. And verse 52 And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The same thing. God is prophesying the same thing that Caiaphas is prophesying. But what does God mean by those words? What does it mean for his Messiah to die for the nation? Is he talking about mere political deliverance? Well, certainly not. Because Jesus will come into Jerusalem and prophesy the complete destruction of Jerusalem and the entire city. Jesus' death of the nation was a wholly different kind of sacrifice than Caiaphas realized. It was the kind of sacrifice that was predicted by the prophet Daniel. When Daniel said, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness It was a sacrifice of one for the sins of many. That's the kind of sacrifice that God was prophesying. And what exactly did God mean by verse 52, gathering the one, the children of God, who are scattered abroad? Are these merely the Jews of the Diaspora, the Jews spread all over the empire? Or are these Jews and Gentiles out of every tribe and tongue and nation? Jesus said that many would come from the east and from the west, and they would sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. Jesus said, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. God's gathering in the one, the children of God, was a whole lot larger than Caiaphas ever imagined. So friends, when God prophesied through Caiaphas, Caiaphas spoke the truth but much more truth than he himself even realized. Now, Caiaphas has no interest in Jesus' true identity. He sought to kill him out of political expediency. But God meant it all for good because there was far more to Caiaphas' prophecy than Caiaphas ever realized. Now, friends, I have referenced Psalm too often But can you hear the echoes of God's laughter in this passage? The psalm tells us the nations rage against God. They take counsel against the Lord and his anointed. Well, isn't that precisely what Caiaphas' counsel is doing here? Plotting against God's anointed. So, how does God respond? The psalm says, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. Do you suppose God just sort of chuckled a bit when he prophesied through Caiaphas that one man would die for the nation? There's actually some humor in this. Like Caiaphas is up there doing his job as a high priest. God doesn't even know what he's saying. And God's like, that's kind of funny. I'm prophesying truth for you and you don't even get it. At the very moment the rulers conspire to take out the Lord's anointed, the psalmist says God is going to appoint a king as ruler over the nations. And that is precisely what happens in the final week. The soldiers will mock Jesus, and they will coronate him with a twisted crown of thorns, and they will give him a reed for a scepter. And they will anoint him with their foul saliva as they spit on him. And God says, "Ha." You just anointed my king. They will lift him up on a cross as if it were a throne. And God will laugh. And God will say, you will rule over death from that throne. They will seal him in a tomb. And Jesus will emerge with all authority in heaven and earth. And he will say, go make disciples of all nations. Or in the words of verse 52, go gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's what's actually happening here. So friends, in conclusion, do you really believe Paul's statement? In Romans 8 and verse 28, Paul says, we know that for those who love God, and that includes Jesus. Does it not? Would you say Jesus loved God? God. Ever thought about the application of this verse to Jesus? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So yes, indeed, God took what the Sanhedrin meant for evil, and he turned it around for the greatest possible good. God took Caiaphas' prophecy for evil, and he turned it around to a prophecy of the advancement of the gospel. In the dark days leading up to the cross, the disciples could not understand the mysterious ways of God. But all the while, God is just sitting up there on his throne, and he is laughing at the vain efforts of men to thwart his plans. The question that the psalmist asks in Psalm 2 is this Why do the nations rage? But it's actually not a question of ignorance, it's a question of futility. It means something like, why bother? Why are you even trying to resist God? That's actually funny. It's not going to work. You will not thwart his plans. So friends, we simply live our lives and give our lives to God. And it is true that we don't always see how God is going to work out everything for our good. How is God going to pull this off? And it can be really difficult to be patient. It can be really difficult to deal with uncertainty. It's hard when the future looks bleak and you just, you just can't see a way forward. I get it. I don't like uncertainty either. But here we are. We're about to go into the darkest moment in all of human history. In the final week in Jerusalem. But Jesus loves god and all things are going to work together for good and god has already proven that he can take the most diabolical unjust verdict in world history the verdict of the sanhedrin against jesus and he can turn that all around into the greatest possible good so friends if he can do that for jesus he can do it for all those who love him So, what are you supposed to do when the future is just uncertain? It's just bleak. You know what you do? You just go right on loving God. Just go right on loving God. So, we pray. Father, we're so thankful for this delightful passage. We're thankful, Lord, for the way that you turn the counsel of men against them. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible way that you took the darkest hour in all human history and you turned it around into the brightest moment in all of human history when Jesus resurrected from the grave and opened the way to the new creation. So I pray, Lord, that as we approach this communion table that we would indeed renew our love for the Father, the Son, the Spirit and trust you to work good in our lives. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.